Welcome to our third episode of Between Two Docs. I am Dr. Harris Cohen, joined today by Dr. Dominic Valentino. Uh, we are trying to make this a straight talk, no politics, no hysteria, week wrap up for, for everybody who's tuning in both audio and audio and visual. Uh, we're two docs talking about COVID in real life, and we want to really get to your questions that you've been so kindly sending in to us. We appreciate all of the emails and comments, and there are many of them, and we do try to get to every single one, either by addressing it here on Between Two Docs, or we try to respond to your emails uh, through text if we don't feel like it's going to fit the, the flow of the show. We do have three segments today, and that's the format we're going to keep. We're going to start out with some uh, news items. Uh, then we're going to go to a very special guest, and then we're going to wrap it up with getting to the questions that you asked us through our email account. Um, we're going to start out tonight's first segment with news, and we're going to each talk about an article or something out there in the world that has struck us as being relevant, new, or changed. And I'm going to hand over to Dr. Valentino for what struck him the most this week. Yeah, well, what's been striking me lately is uh, these messages about a study in Italy where they did autopsies and found a bacterium. Uh, folks, that's complete nonsense. It's a, uh, it's, it's a false news message that's been going around Facebook and other sites for a while. Um, please don't put any credence to that. There is no new bacterium causing COVID. Um, please uh, target that for the delete button. And that'll be the last we speak about that because it's garbage. Um, what isn't garbage is something that was published in New England Journal May 22nd, uh, which is the first uh, large study on remdesivir, which is the antiviral medication um, that has been employed around the world uh, in trials for um, SARS-CoV-2, known as COVID. Um, so a basic synopsis of it, there's 1,059 patients that were randomized uh, 538 of them got the drug and 521 got placebo. Placebo means they didn't get anything. They got a control substance, which usually means they got a saline infusion um, with no medication in it. Um, it was multinational, so it was done around the world. It was not just in the United States. Um, patients were given the drug for up to 10 days during the study. Um, the, the interesting points to note about this were that um, patients were started on the drug an average of nine days after they developed symptoms, and I'll come back to why that's important in a second. And 88% of people uh, who got the drug would qualify as severe COVID disease. They were all hospitalized. It's an intravenous drug. It's not a pill. Uh, many of them were in the ICU. They only reported mortality at 14 days because when the time the study was published, they did not have enough information for the 28-day mark. So that is going to be published at some point but I think they wanted to get some preliminary information out. Um, and this was not geared to look at uh, mortality primarily. This is really looking at, uh, was there you know, improvement in, um, uh, in, in days of symptoms and whatnot. So the mortality at 14 days is 7.1% for the treatment group and for the placebo group, 11.9, um, which might seem a lot different. It's not tremendously different. And again, it's only at 14 days. That's not maybe the best benchmark. We'd like to see this out a little bit more. Um, so we will look forward to that data coming out on the 28 day. And then there's some other studies being looked at in remdesivir. I think one of the takeaway points that the um, uh, ICU community is, is looking at this in, in, in the sense, and really hospital medicine too, because they're gonna be using it on, on medical floors, is that maybe this study shows that if it's done earlier, 
it might be more helpful. Um, getting to any medication in somebody late, whether it be this drug or an antibiotic for another type of infection, we know that late drugs are less effective for a lot of infectious diseases. And I think that's going to be the story in the end for remdesivir. Of course, that part is my opinion, um, but at least we have some uh, promising first look data that does show a reduction in days of symptoms, uh, even if we don't have a complete um, uh, benefit on mortality. So stay tuned. There's going to be more information coming out on remdesivir, uh, like many other drugs that are being looked at in uh, COVID. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Cohen for uh, something that's been in the news that he wants to talk about. The, the news article or the news piece that struck me the most this week and has been an ongoing debate is what do we do about surfaces? What is the real deal on should we worry about touching desks and door handles and Uncle Jerry's shirt and that sort of thing? And, and, and the data, the initial data that came out way back in March and April, they had very good guidelines where they said, hey, this virus lives for a while. It can last on copper for about four hours. It can last on cardboard for 24 hours. It could be on plastic, wood, or glass from three to five days. So, of course, with that comes a little bit of fear, with sprinkle with a little bit of hysteria. You know, people are wiping down their groceries, coming into the house because there's cardboard involved, leaving things in the garage for 24 to 48 hours, not opening packages, not opening mail, which is a normal response because this virus, we don't know anything about it. And if it can live on my mail, I don't want it in my house. Fast forward a little bit, and over the past couple of weeks, the CDC has tried to bring us some guidance on this. Last week, they sort of said, hey, don't worry about surfaces and not so many terms. Uh, let's worry about person-to-person -person transmission. Then this week, they said, hey, you know what? Maybe that's a little bit too extreme. We do probably have to worry about surfaces. However, this virus is transmitted from person to person. And this is going to happen when two people are in close contact with one another in, within six feet, and they're sharing droplets that are infected. The droplet can land in your mouth. It can land in your nose. You can rub it into your eye. That's where the concern is. We know that this virus spreads very easily between people. Uh, we know that it can be spread from people possibly to their pets, but not from pets to people. And this has been very, very seen anecdotally at this point. But touching a surface with virus on it is still very low risk. You would still have to touch a surface that was freshly coated in someone's droplets and then put it into one of your orifices for entry into your body. So we should still be careful about high touch surfaces. I think, you know, toilet handles, uh, doorknobs, that sort of thing, not necessarily in your own home, but you know, once we start to open up a little bit more in public places or, or at friends' houses and still be very conscious of wiping down those surfaces. And if you still wanna wipe down your groceries, that's fine. That gives you a certain amount of reassuredness or assuredness that you're gonna be okay. But the reality is transmission from a surface to give you actual disease sounds to be very difficult. This is a person-to-person -person disease. Conceivably, there are situations where this could happen, but would require a, a perfect chain of events for it to happen. So continue to be cautious, wipe down surfaces if it makes you feel comfortable. But really, your protection is really important when you're speaking with others or being near others and not touching that Rice Krispies box that was just delivered to your house from the supermarket. So continued hand washing, continued attention to surfaces, but not the major fear and hysteria that initially came out regarding surface transmission. Welcome to our next segment of Between Two Docs, where I am pleased to present our first outside guest this week. 
It's Dr. Joshua Barron. He did his undergraduate training at the University of Maryland, Go Terps, went to med school at one of the finest academies in Philadelphia, uh, PECOM, then went on to do his residency at Einstein, again in Philadelphia. He's now a practicing board-certified emergency physician at a suburban Philadelphia ER for the past 13 years, and we're very pleased to have you here tonight. Thank you for joining both Dr. Valentino and myself. Dr. Valentino had the pleasure of meeting you at PECOM. I had the pleasure of meeting you when we were 10-year-old and 9-year-old young man at, the, at overnight camp. So thanks for being with us tonight. We wanted to throw a few questions at you and uh, get a perspective. Uh, you know, D Dr. Valentino is a pulmonologist and uh, I'm, I'm an outpatient primary care doctor, so we wanted to talk to someone in a different part of the trenches. So first question I would have for you is, is it time now for patients who don't have COVID to start coming into the ER again? You know, what, what, what trends have you seen? What's been going on? I just ate three cheesesteaks and I'm having chest pain. Do I go to the ER or do I wait it out at home? All right, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, flattered to be actually between two docs uh, that I admire very much. And, um, you know, thank you for that introduction. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anything changes really. If you have medical condition, an ailment or illness or injury that requires medical attention, you really need to come to the hospital and get the, get the care that you need. Um, I certainly understand several months ago when this was very new and we were inundated with cases and overwhelmed by uh, the onset of COVID-19, that it was frightening. Uh, I can understand that. Um, but you should definitely feel confident that it's safe to come to the ER. It was then, and it is even more so now, as the cases continue to decrease day by day. Um, we've seen a number of cases that had bad outcomes, unfortunately, because people are afraid to come to the ER in fear that the virus is going to catch up with them there. But I assure you, and I think I speak for all emergency rooms and all hospitals for that matter, that we're doing everything in our power to keep the facility safe, to keep you safe. And it's imperative that you not neglect your medical health uh, in, out of fear. Um, I've seen more ruptured appendicitis in the last several weeks than I've probably seen in my 13 year career because people have been sitting on this, you know, irritating pain that continues to worsen and they ignore and worsen and ignore until it's too late. And a very unfortunate case of a young man uh, who we actually were able to resuscitate enough to get to the cath lab, but ended up not making it due to a massive MI for not coming to the ER for four days uh, with chest pain. So to answer your question, yes, it's certainly safe to come back. We don't, we, we've lost so many lives due to COVID and we really need to stop losing additional lives due to medical conditions because of fear. Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Barron, that's a great answer and uh, something that I know my colleagues share. Um, we wanna see people getting back to the routine of things. And uh, that really means exactly what you said. Uh, when there's an urgent matter, don't put it off. Um, it's not like it was a few months ago. So along the lines of that, could you tell me a little bit um, about what you have been seeing? I know you gave those two examples of appendicitis or MI, but you know other things that have 
been put off. Now people are showing up to the ER. What, what kind of things are you seeing? I think one of the things that's been really the most, um, you know, upsetting is just the amount of behavioral health and mental health issues that uh, we take a lot of pride at, at, at the facility where I work. We have an inpatient psych psychiatric unit. We have a crisis center. We have amazing social services and psychiatry staff. And the amount of mental health and behavioral health that also is being put to the side because of fear is, is just staggering. Um, you know, the, the domestic abuse, the suicidality, the depression, um, you know, in a pandemic, depression and anxiety is just magnified. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, no different, that, you know, than ignoring other physical uh, symptoms to ignore mental health system symptoms has really just been really unfortunate. And I really, just to reiterate, you need to have confidence in, in your community ERs to, re, you know, to return to the hospital for the care that you need, whether it's mental health or physical health. That's yeah, super important. A lot of what we're dealing with right now as a primary care doctor is the, is the mental anguish that we're seeing with this. And there's already a ton of um, undertreated and underdiagnosed depression and anxiety, which is now obviously being magnified by this unprecedented issue. Uh, a lot of fear out there. And as you know, for all three, you know, all three of us know how mental health can drive physical complaints and vice versa and how tough it is sometimes to figure out what's what. That's why we need that rapid testing that the ER can offer. Um, going along those lines, you know, I, I'm dealing all day with multiple televisits. You know, I want to be able, if, I, if I'm not sure what I'm seeing and they need emergency room uh, guidance, I want to be able to tell them, look, I want you to go to this hospital and this is what this ER is doing to make it safe for you. Um, you know, they don't want to be mixed with COVID patients. They don't want to be sitting next to someone with a fever and a cough. What has your ER done to make that transition and make less fear for people who are coming in with non-COVID complaints to be seen? What have you done specifically with your system? So, yeah, so a lot of the people who are coming in for strictly testing issues don't even enter the ER. Uh, I think recently we're, we're starting to um, you know, do some of that testing within the ER itself. But initially we had the tent outside the facility to expedite that testing, screen people, and we were keeping those cases away from the uh, patients in the ER. Uh, everyone that enters the ER, the staff included, uh, temperature checks, questionnaires uh, to, you know, right at the, at the, you know, precipice of entering, we're going to catch some things that might have otherwise slipped through the cracks. Um, all of the staff from registration to security, maintenance, and everything in between is wearing masks. We're in masks our entire shift. Uh, you'll see us and the staff wearing surgical caps, masks, in certain instances where there's uh, the possibility of a COVID case or a known COVID case, full PPE, uh, every room is turned over and cleaned with special attention to rooms that had COVID patients in them. All the rooms in our facility are private, so there's never you know, one-on-one -on -one contact with a non-COVID uh, or COVID patient. I mean, we're taking all of the, the proper and appropriate steps to make sure that you're safe and the staff is safe. And again, just to reiterate, you should feel comfortable going to your local ER. So 
Dr. Barron, as we wrap this segment up, and we definitely appreciate your time and insight, I think this has been really valuable for us, and I, I hope the viewers and listeners will get a lot out of this as well. What would you say would be one lesson that you've learned um, from this whole COVID pandemic um, in terms of whether it be your practice or how you approach a clinical problem or you know things as a whole in the emergency room? I think the thing that's really um, touched me the most, um, I like to think that the, uh, the bedside part of medicine, the human interaction side of medicine, uh, the, the relationship that I try to cultivate with patients and their families is something that I take a huge amount of pride in. And with this current pandemic, the absence of the family the spouse, um, the grandparent has just been gut-wrenching. Um, some of the most difficult things we do as ER physicians is to give bad news. It's just part of what we do. Um, and, and that really just breaks my heart that these people are alone. Um, in an effort to, to try to limit exposure to infection, we've, as part of you know, keeping the facility safe and the, and the patients safe and the staff safe, is to limit the amount of people coming into the hospital and in their most trying and dire times to be alone has just been, just been really, really difficult uh, on everyone involved. But it just reiterates the fact that the part of medicine that I've loved from the outset, um, being a friend, being you know, a parent when, when the parent's not there or, or a sibling or a son for a, for a really suffering or dying patient, just reinforces, you know, why I went into medicine in the first place. Um, like I said, I just really take a lot of pride in establishing that rapport and, and that relationship. And it just reinforced to me how significant and important that is every day. Um, but even more so now when people are truly alone. Yeah, I, I think um, that underscores the humanism in medicine that is sometimes overlooked. And, you know, in our busy days, it's easy to, especially with electronic medical records and all the other things that pull us away from patients, it's sometimes easy to overlook that. But I, I share your, your, your feeling that when you've had that element taken away, there's a huge hole there and something doesn't feel right um, about it. Although we've tried to make the best, you know, with electronic means and whatnot, it's not the exact same. Um, so... Uh, I, I appreciate your your um, your thoughts and your reflection on this. I think that uh, the emergency room always being the front line for the sicker patients uh, has played an invaluable role in all of this. And uh, I, I very much value what you and your colleagues are doing and have done um, throughout this time. So thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate what you guys are doing and all the other frontline workers, whether it's in a hospital or outside. Um, you know, it, it says a lot about a person's character uh, when they're willing to put themselves on the line to help other people. Appreciate that. Thanks for your time, Dr. Barron. Thanks, Dr. Um, Barron. My pleasure, guys, to share the spotlight with you guys. It's a, it's a real honor. And um, thank you for listening. We're going to uh, transition over to some of the questions now uh, in our last segment. And uh, we've gotten a lot of great ones. We're going to hit on four of them today. The first one, Dr. Cohen is going to address. So um, do you think it's uh, okay to have a small gathering, let's say less than 10 people? And if so, how do we do it safely? 
Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. We're, we're all yearning to break, break the chains of quarantine and isolating at home. And remember, state-by-state guidelines are going to differ here. Here in Pennsylvania, many counties are still red where they still recommend staying at home, even though if you're in a group, they recommend less than 10 people. When we go to yellow, they're going to recommend groups of less than 25. And then once we get to green, it's going to be responsible groups. So again, this is going to be a state-to-state issue. Not all of our viewers are from uh, Pennsylvania necessarily. But you know, the general rule of thumb is as we're starting to get out of our houses a little bit once we're allowed to uh, legally, uh, is, you know, outside is going to be better than inside. So if you want to be with others, outside is going to be a generally safer choice. And again, masks are going to be better than no masks. So when in doubt, wearing that mask to protect those around you and having them do that for you as well is going to be very important. Focus on lower risk activities, going for a walk with a friend or two, meeting at a park where it's wide open, being in a pool we think is going to be pretty safe, uh, not necessarily the pool that we saw in the Ozarks uh, over Memorial Day weekend where there are a thousand people in it, but we don't think this is going to transmit very easily in a pool. The concern is what happens when you get out of the pool and you're on a pool deck and there's chairs, and there's people clustering. So again, common sense rules the day. And then, you know, eating outside, you know, it's getting nice out this part of, in this part of the country. You're going to want to have a barbecue. If you want to invite a family over that's been doing a really good job like you've been doing and sit socially distanced, you know, you don't necessarily, don't necessarily need a mask outside um, and sit outside and have a nice meal. I think that's great. But remember, they're going to have to use the bathroom at some point, which may involve entry into your house. You have to think that out. Or they might have to use your lawn, which you might not want. Um, so I, I think really avert, you know, avoid people who are sick. Hanging out with people who have thought likewise like you, who have been quarantining and playing by the rule book for a little bit. Be smart. Use your judgment. We're not ready to hang out with our elderly folks yet who are immunocompromised. We're not ready to hang out with people who are going through chemotherapy for cancer. But, you know, it's going to be a judgment call. Make the right judgment. If you're in doubt, stay with your immediate family. There's no need to jump right to groups, but we're going to get there. Things are going to open up. It's human nature. Don't want to be with others. But let's do it responsibly. So uh, that was that was that was a great question, and many people have asked about that. Uh, a more technical question that we've seen for Dr. Valentino uh, being in the hospital is: Are you seeing ECMO, and I'll have him explain that, being used in patients with severe COVID? Yeah, great question. ECMO uh, ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. What that means is. Catheters are placed in either two veins or in a large artery in a vein, and blood is circulated out of the body into a device that applies oxygen to it. The red blood cells pick up oxygen and take it back to your body. Um, it basically is a machine that can take the place of your lungs, and it's something that actually is used if you've had uh, open heart surgery where um, they are uh, temporarily not flowing blood through the lungs. They throw it through one of these machines to put oxygen in and then get it back to your body. So that's basically, uh, in, the, in the easiest way to understand it, what it does. Um, it's used as a rescue device in a select group of patients. It's not for everybody. You have to be on um, a fair amount of blood thinning uh, medicine to be on it. And there's a lot of contraindications to it. However, it's ideally used in younger patients who don't have a lot of other comorbidities or don't have a lot of other organ failure, but perhaps their lungs and or lungs and heart are failing from COVID. Um, we've seen a couple of cases like that 
um, in, uh, I work at a couple of hospitals, but uh, one of them that does not have ECMO capability, we've sent a few people to a large referral center for it. They happen to be younger people who were under the age of 45 um, and we thought would uh, benefit. And from what I've heard in follow-up, they are benefiting. In fact, one got completely better uh, and was uh, taken off of those devices and no longer requires oxygen or machines. Um, so it's helpful when it's done and done right in the right patient early. It's not for everyone. Um, it's also varied depending on the population you're seeing with COVID. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen other large hospitals that have it available that haven't had to use it. And in a large part, I think that's because of the aggressiveness of treatments um, when they're first entering the hospital and then when they get to the ICU even, and by aggressiveness, I mean uh, a, a planned, directed approach with things like steroids and other agents that I've mentioned in my writings or we've mentioned in these talks before. Um, so that's uh, the summary of ECMO. ECMO in COVID is helpful. Thankfully, we've not seen a large run on it, um, but it is one of those things that in, in situations like this, can be a helpful modality to potentially save someone's life. And so uh, another great question, and this one is on everybody's minds uh, for the coming months. Um, we see a lot of questions about going back to school. So what do we think of the CDC's guidelines for school reopening? Yeah, the CDC has continued to issue an evolving Evolving uh, course of guidelines for school reopening, and again, remember that you know your state and local uh, districts are going to be sort of ruling the day here. Uh, in Pennsylvania, they're they're projecting June fifteenth. The Pennsylvania Department of Education is going to un unveil their comprehensive blueprint for reopening. But the guidelines from the CDC are a very loose scaffolding, basically around prevention, health and safety action plans, and ongoing monitoring. You know, is the school ready? to protect kids who are at a higher risk of severe illness? Can they screen students and employees upon arrival each day for symptoms and history of exposure? Can they prevent the sick kids or staff from coming in? Obviously, they need to promote healthy hygiene. There's gotta be hand washing stations, frequent hand washing and teacher prompted hand washing for these kids. Because I remember when I was a kid, I'm not sure I ever washed my hands. Mm -hmm. I, did, I did okay. Um, should employees be wearing, you know, face coverings? A little bit alarming. You know, did the kids need to wear them? Did their teachers need to wear them? Schools need to look at their HVAC systems. They need to look at their custodial staffs because there has to be a significant amount of cleaning, uh, you know, between each school day over the weekends and also throughout the school days. Is there enough ventilation? Can they do social distancing? I mean, schools are crowded. Uh, can they keep enough small groups and limiting the mix between other groups? Can they make that and build that into the school day? Will all employees and health staff be trained appropriately? You know, a lot of schools don't even have school nurses, uh, which is a really scary thing pre-pandemic. And then ongoing monitoring. What happens when someone gets sick? How do you contact trace? How do you destigmatize people from being sick to stay home. You know, a lot of us work sick, doctors, nurses, we all pride ourselves on that. I'm not sure that can continue. What is the plan for when someone gets sick? Do they go home? Do they quarantine? What do you do with, you know, the other kids in the class, the kids in the art class, the kids, you know, in the after school program? 
you know, you have to have flexible policies, flexible leave policies, and, you know, a lot of understanding. So, you know, the framework is there and there's a lot of ideas bandied about now start, you know, in this part of the country, we don't start school till September in the South, they start earlier because it's hot. Should we start earlier and give a longer winter break when we worry about this possible second wave and flu season ramping up? Is it possible to split classrooms in half, have half the students present socially distanced, have the other half watch it live from home and then alternate are you going to have plexiglass in the lunchroom? Are you going to have physical education, gym, outside only, massive games of dodgeball? Um, you know, and we're going to know more as we get closer. Remember, we're two or three months into this. We have two or three months before school starts. Um, I welcome people's ideas, you know, through our email or in the comments below because there's a lot. This is going to be a very crowdsourced uh, issue, both for the superintendent, the school boards, parents, and kids to get involved with. And there's no one solution. There's no one size fits all here. Uh, we're going to know a lot more, but what we know is it's going to be different. And I know Dr. Valentino and myself both want our kids back in school, not from a selfish reason, but because we want them to get their educations, of course. Mm -hmm. um, moving along, uh, in, in another common thought that we get from our emails and friends and family and, and, and coworkers and, uh, is how much information is out there. There's a, there's a constant flow and overflow of information. I don't know who to believe. I don't know where to go to. I can't watch news all day. I can't scroll Facebook all day. It's just not healthy. You know, what can I do to make sense of it all? How can I avoid getting stressed out by this 24 seven news environment that we live in both true and false news? Yeah. Uh, this is something I'm not just advising I'm living. So I, I actually have to had to build kind of a system for this because the flow is incessant. And I'm not talking about just mainstream news or other things like that. Even um, medical publications, it's a nonstop stream of emails and links and articles. Um, I think for, for the everyday person, please think of a strategy. You, you can't spend all day reading these articles or um, looking up Facebook posts and verifying. You know, basically, if a Facebook post starts off with something that it was a friend of a friend of a friend or... I heard or this miraculous study out of Italy kind of thing, um, tend to not waste your time on that stuff. Um, if you wanna look up real publications or articles coming out, um, there's a number of, of, of sites that I've written about and, and Dr. Cohen's written about before that you, know, you can reference. Um, yes, the CDC and the WHO don't always meet up eye to eye and they, like they did this week, put out conflicting information on masks and so people are wondering, as one of my good friends from grade school posted today, you know, who do we believe? Um, it's a conundrum, but it's not one that you should necessarily lose sleep over or have control over. Realize that both of those entities are coming from two different perspectives. Um, I think in the United States, we're probably a little bit better off, you know, getting some information from the CDC. And yes, the CDC's information can vary and change. That's because we're learning about this as it goes. The science and the data changes. The science and the data is coming from human beings. Human beings were fallible. So what we thought in March may not be true in June. Uh, sometimes people get out information prematurely and they have to get it and say, I gotta take a walk back on this. The CDC has done things like that, okay? I understand we want the rock hard answer. You're not always gonna get that. We don't always get that in medicine. Studies, there's never an end-all, be-all, one study that just closes the case on something. 
there's usually nuances and other things that come up. So approach it with an open mind and yet a mind that is also thinking about other things in life that you need to focus on. Um, I also want to uh, bring this point too that, you know, Dr. Cohen and myself are probably not going to spend our time refuting other people's Facebook posts. Uh, we are both working. We both do this on the side because we think it's in, uh, both enjoyable and valuable, but um, it's not something that we feel necessary to go and, and refute people's posts on one thing or another. And maybe you shouldn't necessarily feel that way either. You spend a lot of time and angst and stress levels go up when you're typing away, probably not the best use of your body's cortisol, uh, which is a stress hormone. Um, so just take those things, uh, you know, with a grain of salt, have a set focus of where you're drawing your news from and be consistent with it. And um, I think life will be a little bit easier when it comes to COVID. Yeah, very well stated. I think we really have to invest our trust in sources that, that have earned our trust. Uh, otherwise, it, it, this, is, this is too stressful without knowing where to go. And, you know, Dr. Valentino and myself are doing our best to, to bring you honest, curated, up-to-date information. And we hope to gain that trust from you. So thanks for tuning in tonight. Uh, going forward, we'll continue to introduce special guests each week. We are excited for next week's episode, episode four, to have Mr. Ed O'Melia, who's a youth baseball coach, to discuss how COVID has impacted kids' sports and what it means. And obviously, there'll be tie-ins with soccer and lacrosse and any sports that your kids play. Please continue to send us questions at between2docs, T-W-O, docs at gmail.com. We do read each and every one and try to respond to as many as we can. And we hope to continue to introduce this weekly. So for Dr. Valentino, I am Dr. Cohen. Thank you for joining us for episode three. Stay safe, be well, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you, folks.